tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Dougald Hine. He was my guest before on Tidings in September 2014. After an early career as a BBC journalist, Dougald co-founded the Dark Mountain Project and also a school called Home. His book today that we're going to be talking about is At Work in the Ruins. It concludes the work that he began with Uncivilization, the Dark Mountain Manifesto, co-written with Paul Kingsnorth. Dougal is originally from the northeast of England. He now lives in central Sweden, which is where he's speaking to us from today. So welcome back to Tidings, Dougal. Welcome back to WPKN again. Hello, Hazel. It's good to be back. I hope it won't be another eight years before we speak again. But when we did speak eight years ago, you told me then the Dark Mountain, which was just then beginning to be a cultural movement, it gave people a space to talk about accepting or thinking about the fact that the world will never again be as it was, and that somehow it's futile to expect that to happen. You've kept the essence of that vision in your book, but you've taken it much further in scale with the way life itself on Earth has moved in those eight years. What made the greatest impression on me then was this belief that you at Dark Mountain have, yet yes, we must acknowledge the world was coming to an end, but we must also find the best way to live within that reality. That was then. Today, though, we're talking about your new book. Your book is being launched tomorrow, published by Chelsea Green, I think in London. Vermont and London. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about At Work in the Ruins, finding our place in the time of science, climate change, pandemics, and all the other emergencies. You said you stopped talking about climate change because words were failing you. And that after 15 years, you realized you'd nothing left to say. So, yeah, Hazel, I had this moment in September 2021. So a year and a half into the COVID time, I was having a conversation on a Friday morning with my dear friend Felix Marcard. And I heard these words come out of my mouth. I said, maybe it's time to stop talking about climate change. And I said that as I was reflecting on a series of recent Zoom meetings that I'd had with different researchers or journalists. It has been part of my role over the 15 years or so since Paul and I met and began writing the Dark Mountain Manifesto has been to get into all kinds of conversations with people about climate change where, you know, I'm not the person who's telling anyone about the science and the facts and figures of climate change. That's not my role, but to pick up where that leaves off and give voice to what does it mean? What does it change? How do we have to re-understand ourselves if we're going to actually take on board this knowledge that science is presenting us with about the depth of the trouble the world is in, including the part of that trouble that often goes under the name of climate change. And so somehow I had come to this point where my heart was no longer convinced that a conversation that starts from talking about climate change can get to the depth of the trouble we're in. And so, yeah, I wrote the book 
And of course, the joke is that there's a lot about climate change in what I've written. So I haven't been very successful in stopping talking about climate change. If this is, as we said in the Dark Mountain Manifesto, not the end of the world, but the end of the world as we know it, and a time of endings, a time that contains a great deal of loss. What is the loss? What are the endings? What is the trouble? I think we usually, these days, think of climate change as an effect of the bad things that we've done in this world. But you're looking at it maybe more as a cause of an ending? It's interesting to hear you say that, Hazel, because I think it isn't necessarily clear whether we're talking about it as a cause or an effect. The way I put it in the book is climate change asks us questions that climate science can't answer. And the biggest question, in a way, is how did we get here? How did we find ourselves in this trouble? Is it the result of a piece of bad luck with the atmospheric chemistry that it turns out in hindsight that all of these carbon emissions that we've been throwing out since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that actually that is destabilizing the the whole climate arrangement within which everything that we've called human civilization so far has taken place? Or is it a consequence of a way that we've been approaching the world, a way that we've been seeing and treating everything and everyone that would always have brought us to this kind of trouble, even if the IPCC turned around tomorrow and said, terribly embarrassing, we got our sums wrong. Turns out that the CO2 emissions aren't a problem after all. In your book, you talk about climate change as death. We're living in a death-fueled society because of the fossil fuels on which this way of living has been built. And somehow you said, but all life feeds on death. Maybe maybe I just didn't understand that part. It's worth unpacking that, Hazel. Please do. There's a paradox, which is, yes, all life feeds on death. And this is just a biological fact that links us to all other living things. We eat, and then sooner or later we're eaten. That's Mm -hmm. the default arrangement of the world. And all human cultures that have had a lasting presence in a place have had woven in into their stories and myths and practices an awareness of this and attention to it, noticing the cost of your living, noticing the death that you rely on in order to live and trying to make sure that you live in such a way that your own death and your own leavings contribute to the possibility of life for humans and others in an ongoing way. I'm drawing partly on Robin Wall Kimmerer, her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and she talks Mm. about the honourable harvest, the way of taking where you don't take more than you're capable of giving. And what I say is, in some strange way, once we became dependent on fossil fuels, that logic was broken beyond repair. But suddenly we find ourselves building societies whose abundance, whose apparent abundance, is founded on the one hand on slavery and colonialism going on a very long way away from the centres of modernity, but also on millions of years of the death of plants and small creatures in ancient forests and seas. And once that is the condition of possibility for your life, how can you possibly have any chance of that reciprocity through which you attempt to be worthy of what you take? You attempt to give as much as you're taking over the course of your lifetime and in your community and culture's way of being in the world. 
part of why we are living through this great unraveling is because of the impossibility of landing a fossil fuel-based industrial society in something that can be worthy of all that it takes. And so we're going to have to find our way through the ending of that into something humbler that takes less for granted. I think you report Macron, the, the president of France, saying to Greta Thunberg that economic growth and ecological viability are incompatible. And then you go into so-called green growth is a fantasy, and that growth simply cannot be decoupled from its environmental impacts. Could you talk about those two things? Well, because I've been speaking publicly for a long time about the climate crisis, not as something that is going to be fixed and made manageable, but as something that's calling our whole ways of living and being in the world yeah. into question. Yeah. I started to get, particularly over the last five years or so, people sometimes from deep inside national or international institutions reaching out to me quietly, wanting to have conversations about the gap between the official story that their organizations were telling and the reality that they were seeing as they looked at the numbers, as they paid attention to what was happening in the world. And in those conversations, people started to say to me, look, you know, we are effectively cooking the books in order to make it look mm -hmm. as though green growth is possible. Once that becomes speakable, once that gets admitted in the public sphere, we really don't know where we're going. I started to get invited into conversations with climate scientists, often in situations where you'd have these unusual combinations of people brought together for a couple of days, where there would be the scientists, indigenous elders, artists, maybe people from the humanities and social sciences as well. And there was this a strange helplessness coming from the scientists. Like they had enough evidence to tell us we can't go on like this but it didn't seem to make any difference when they told people that. And I began to feel that the work of science is badly served by the big story about science that modernity has often told. In that story, we end up asking too much of science, asking science to tell us everything that needs to be known about how the world is, why it is this way, what we ought to be doing. We end up with slogans like, unite behind the science, and this then slid into the political rhetoric of following the science during the pandemic. I want to say that science has a really important seat at the table. It can explain things to us. It deserves to be taken seriously. But it can't carry all the weight of knowing a thing like climate change. We can't replace the exercise of judgment with processes of measurement and calculation. And often what's really happening is that science is getting used as a kind of front of authority behind which power is at work. And then when the scientists do try to tell us we can't go on like this, you know, all of the evidence is telling us that the trajectories of our societies are incompatible with a livable future, then suddenly the scientists discover that they are no more listened to than the protesters outside the gates of the, the climate summits. And so it's into that gap between the high story, the big story of science and the messiness of the realities that scientists and non-scientists find themselves in that I'm trying to speak here. Somewhere you say science sees everything as being the same size because they look at it without emotion or vulnerability. 
you say, and yet without vulnerability, you cannot know climate change. So whatever the climate scientists know about climate change is not enough. You say at one stage, it's too big and it's too small. What Mm. I'm saying is that science has limitations and those limitations become troubling when we ask it to do all of the work. If I'm speaking generally, I would say that science produces a particular powerful kind of knowledge by treating the world as if it can be held at arm's length, by looking at it down the lens of a telescope or a microscope. But it also risks leaving us in a place of false detachment because the world is not the kind of place that can be held at arm's length. And acting as if we can hold the world at arm's length carries with it a sense of invulnerability. The kind of knowledge that science produces is an arm's length knowledge, a knowledge of facts and figures. And if we don't then also do the work of of coming back from that detachment into an embodied vulnerable experience of being in the world, then you can have this paradox in which the knowing looks a lot like not knowing. That's part of where I'm saying We need to be together around the table, covering each other's backs, seeing in each other's blind spots, learning how to collaborate across these different skills and practices rather than there being one in service to the other. Dubald Hine is talking about his new book, At Work in the Ruins. This is Hazel Kahn with Tidings on WPKN Radio. A lot of the critique that I'm making in the book, it's a critique of the way that science is talked about, the way that the science is talked about in the public sphere, in the media, in the politics of our time, and saying that we need to find a way down from this singular authority. This is a good time then to talk about COVID. And you do some very interesting analysis of what, what went on during COVID. With COVID, the whole society got sick. That was a friend of mine who had worked on pandemic flu strategy with the US Department of Defense, who I spoke to in the first week of lockdown in the UK, where he lives these days. And he said to me, I've realized something. A disease is when an individual gets sick. A pandemic is when a society gets sick. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to fully absorb the significance of what he was saying. But I think that a lot of the strangeness of the last three years and a lot of the sense of derangement, to use Amitav Ghosh's word, a lot of that has to do with the cognitive dissonance. At the level of the individual, COVID is a, as far as I can see, and I've had it twice, COVID is a, a nasty virus. And I don't want to downplay it, but the level of acute vulnerability is not about the vulnerability of individuals. It's about the vulnerability of our societies, that we have this way of organizing our societies, which means that to die today in America, any developed society, the default path through which we reach the end of our lives involves going through a hospital. And a hospital is full of very expensive pieces of equipment and people whose training has taken years and cost a great deal. hundred years ago, if you had a nasty virus pass through that meant that there was a 20% increase in the number of mostly elderly people who died this winter compared to last winter, that could happen and hardly anyone notices apart from maybe the gravedigger and the priest. 
Today, if 20% increase on the normal number of deaths for a whole season or a whole year, very quickly becomes the collapse of your healthcare systems with all kinds of knock-on effects. Because once being sick and dying requires all of this expensive equipment and expensive training of the professional care, no society, however prosperous, however socialist, can afford to maintain a huge surplus of that that would allow for abnormal seasons and abnormal years. And so this is the story which I don't think has been told about the pandemic because it doesn't really fit either side of the COVID culture war that we ended up in. We didn't have lockdowns to protect us as individuals. We had lockdowns to protect our healthcare systems because we have created this dependence on systems which bring in, as Yvonne Illich was saying 50 years ago, a new kind of scarcity that wasn't there when the capacity to care for the sick and the dying existed at the scale of households and communities, as it has always had to do throughout human history. Ivan Illich wasn't just saying that about healthcare. He was saying that generally modern systems, the advantages tend to cancel out the more we depend on them. That's right. Illich wrote a series of short books in the early 1970s about the counterproductivity of industrial society. And he says, you can have a thing that, as you have more of it to begin with, it's good for society. But you cross a threshold where it's not just that you get diminishing returns, you get actively negative consequences. So he says, beyond a certain point, our schooling systems make our societies more ignorant. Our healthcare systems create more sickness. Our prison systems create more criminality. And part of how that perverse consequence happens is because of the de-skilling of individuals and households and communities. We become helpless in a way that human beings have never been helpless before. Mm -hmm. We lack the capacity at the level of our households and communities to build our own homes, to grow our own food, to care for our own sick and dying. And we become dependent on these expensive systems of top-down organized professional care. You know, Illich was not a romantic. He wasn't saying we should go back to anything, and I'm not either. What he was saying is, unless we intend to these counterproductivities, we won't get to keep the real achievements of modern societies. Those achievements and those systems kind of interfere with themselves when they get that big. Yeah, you could put it that way, absolutely. I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. Because I've been dying to ask you about the fish tank and the Palestinian chicken. So these are two of the images that I talk about in the later part of the book, trying to make visible this strangeness of modern societies. Mm -hmm. The fish tank belongs to my friend Paul Kingsnorth and his Uh family. And he says, you know, we've learned a lot of things from keeping these freshwater fish. Firstly, it's a lot of work to keep a handful of freshwater fish alive in a fish tank. You have heating systems, you have to think about cooling during hot weather, different chemicals that you measure and then add to the water to balance them out. And he says, and all of this is what any river or stream or lake does easily Mm. and for free. And part of the concern that I'm expressing in the book is that the ways that we talk about climate change, Mm. as if there is no difference between how a fish tank works and how a river or a stream or a lake works. 
and then to try and remake the world into mm. a fish tank that requires monitoring and managing and controlling by humans, presumably with the assistance of AI and the rest of it. And to me, that is both a doomed project that before it fails, will take us a long way further into dystopia. Mm. And if to respond to climate change and the rest of the trouble the world is in, if it is or ought to be a fish tank, i.e. something that is managed and monitored and maintained by human technological systems, we can create hell on earth. And the Palestinian chicken. This comes from a man called Munir Fasha, who's a Palestinian mathematician, and he's an educational activist in Palestine. And he describes a joke that people make in the Galilee, in the Palestinian villages, when they encounter this peculiar helplessness that Illich says is what marks out those who are deeply immersed in modern industrial societies. They say it's like an Israeli chicken, the chickens that you get on battery farms that require all of these special feeds and inputs and heating systems and the rest of it. And if anything goes wrong with those systems and those inputs, then the chickens stop laying eggs. Whereas the Palestinian chickens are village chickens that strut around in the dirt, will eat anything. They survive through their evolution to adapt to the landscape mm. in which they find themselves. The Israeli chicken is the battery chicken, the product of modernized technological systems in the same way as the fish tank is. And that becomes imaginable as better or the best, the most efficient, the most productive. And then anything other than that becomes imaginable only as a kind of nightmare that we might find ourselves back in the village. Mm. Yeah. We have to break out of the trap of that way of thinking, because we're not going to get to sustain all of those systems. Now that you've catalogued for us the reality that we are living in, or that we will have to understand is our reality when we can no longer deny it, be not very keen on the word sustain. How then do we live in that knowledge? This is the question you posed eight years ago. How do you find a way of living among the ruins that you've described? Some of what is visited on us by the shock and the fear of climate change is actually fear of our own mortality that we've been able to hold out of view because our societies encourage us not to think about it. And what is arriving at our door in the form of climate change can look a lot like the world of the powerful becoming conscious for the first time that it too could end after having gone around the rest of the world for five centuries, ending other people's worlds in the name of progress, development, salvation. And so there's a humbling that is being visited on us by these encounters. And so some of what's called for is just to be with that for a while, to let our stories unravel and fall apart and be with the discomfort of that, find others we can talk about that with, and then begin to attend to the things that remain worth doing. Some of which are the things that were always worth doing, you know, being in community, acts of hospitality and kindness, creating little pockets of conviviality, all the things that make life worth living while we have it. But then take seriously the proposition that we're living in a time of endings, which will also be the grounds, the rubble, the ruins out of which new beginnings are made of one kind or another. But nonetheless, there's a lot of loss and grief in this part of the process. And so what I have at the end of the book is a 
a kind of back of an envelope list of four kinds of tasks that might be worth attending to in a time of endings. Right. The first one is to salvage the good that we have a chance of taking with us from the world that is ending. The second one is to mourn the good things that it looks like we won't get to take with us. And in mourning, to tell their stories, because we can carry those stories and those stories might turn out to be seeds somewhere long afterwards. Mm -hmm. Then the third is a task of discernment, to notice those things within the world that we were born into, the ways of living that we've taken for granted as we grew up, that were never as good as we told each other they were, and the chance to walk away from those. And then finally, to notice that When a world is ending, that world had a beginning and other worlds were ending in that beginning. And to look for the dropped threads, the things that have been marked as old-fashioned, outdated, obsolete, that might turn out to make all of the difference as we stumble forwards together into the unknown world that lies ahead beyond the end of the world as we have known it. There have been many ways of being human together in many times and places, And there will be ways of being human together yet to come that we cannot yet imagine, but that we might yet contribute to through our actions and through the stories we tell and carry. So those those are some of the places that you can go looking for the work that might feel worth doing in the the light of all that we we know or have good grounds to fear about the trouble we're in. And you say the work that's going to be done will not be done by people that we necessarily know. The protagonists will not be among us. They will be elsewhere. Well, what I started to notice was that some of these people I was meeting who do get invited into the rooms where the big conversations about climate change happen, you know, people who are officials within national or international institutions, were arriving at this place of real Black pessimism, mm. where they no longer believed in the stories that their institutions were telling about how we were going to save the world, fix climate change, build a sustainable future. It was like they had lost their faith, but they hadn't Mm. questioned the theology of those institutions. They still thought of the world as in need of saving and by people like them in institutions like the ones they worked in. And it was not yet imaginable to them that if something is going to make all the difference, it might not be people like them or me or any of the people who get invited into those rooms who turn out to be the protagonists in the story. It might not all be about the human actors within the story. It might not all be about the ones who look most modern, most powerful, the ones who seem to live nearest to the future, the future that modernity promised. It might actually be among the great numbers of people in this world today who are not as helpless as the typical urban, Mm. modern, Western, Mm. developed individuals. And so we have to try and humble ourselves in terms of our assumptions about where change might come from, who might be the ones who have the clues for what what happens next, because I think we might end up being surprised. Humbling literally means being brought down to earth, and it's going to be a hard landing. We also need to connect with all of the rest of what we're dependent on, including all of the stuff that's going on in the other rooms of the house modernity Mm. built, the work that's being done to clear up the messes that are being made, people who are dealing with the blocked sewerage pipes in the bathroom and doing the washing up in the kitchen, 
if you try and talk about the fact that we're living through the end of the world as we know it, that can sound as if you think you know how the story ends. Mm. None of us knows how this story ends. It doesn't even exactly make sense to think of it as a story with an mm. ending. There is more to come on the far side of letting go of this fantasy that we could somehow sustain the ways of living of the Western middle classes and promise everybody else that they were going to be here soon. There's more that's worth working for than a sustainability that means sustaining the world as we have known it. Sorry, thank you very much, Dougal. To Dougal Hine, and congratulations on your new book, At Work in the Ruins, Finding Our Place in the Time of Science, Climate Change, Pandemics, and All the Other Emergencies. Thank you, Hazel. Really good to talk to you again. Lovely to talk to you. You heard Dougald Hein talking from Sweden about his new book, At Work in the Ruins. You can hear Tidings on the second Wednesday of the month at this time right here or whenever you like as podcasts on hazelkahn.com. To support my programs, Tidings and North Fork Works and all the wonderful WPKN interview programs, please make a donation at wpkn.org. Thank you. I'm Hazel Kahn. Mm-hmm.